Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. Bump, 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 pop, 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 pop. Yep, we still do not have theme music. But that's okay. You didn't really come for the theme music anyways. You came to listen to us, Kalia and Jennifer, talk about a book that was made into a movie and the movie that was based on that book. Today, we are going to be talking about Stephen King's The Mist. Now, before we start talking about Stephen King's The Mist, Jennifer, I believe you are the person who put this on our list of potential books. Please tell us why. It seemed like a good one. I found the changes in the movie uh, versus the book to be really interesting ones. Okay. And so you had read it before. Yes. Okay. I had not read the book nor seen the movie because, and um, full disclaimer here, I don't like horror stuff and scary stuff and nihilistic stuff and things where everybody dies. And I don't really like blood and gore and guts. So... It was a little bit of a departure for me, and I understand that that is going to cloud all of my opinions, but so be it. Since we're talking about the book, I wanted to read to you guys, our faithful listeners here, the brief synopsis that is given on Amazon.com of the book, okay? Or why don't you read it, Jennifer? The number one New York Times bestselling author Stephen King's terrifying novella about a town engulfed in a dense, mysterious mist as humanity makes its last stand against unholy destruction. Okay. So that's kind of what it is. It's it's a horror thing about people in a storm. Go ahead. (laughs) In the wake of a summer storm, terror descends. David Drayden and his son Billy and their neighbor Brent Norton join dozens of others and head to the local grocery store to replenish supplies following a freak storm. Once there, they become trapped by a strange mist that has enveloped the town. As the confinement takes its toll on their nerves, a religious zealot, Miss Carmody, begins to play on their fears to convince them that this is God's vengeance for their sins. She insists a sacrifice must be made, and two groups, those for and those against, are aligned. Clearly saying staying in the store may prove fatal, and the Draydens attempt to make their escape. But what's there may be worse than what they left behind. 
Okay. So that was the novella. Not a novel, but a novella. Mm. And it was published in 1980. So 27 years later, they decided to make this into a movie. Real quick, the movie tagline is much, much shorter. IMDb basically says... A freak storm unleashes a species of bloodthirsty creatures on a small town where a small band of citizens hole up in a supermarket and fight for their lives. Yes, IMDb. Well known for being succinct and sometimes not quite accurate. <laughs> Let's go through some of the main changes. One of the first ones is in the movie, it takes place after the storm. As part of the book, you do get the full description of the storm coming in. Yeah. In fact, in the book, you got some foreshadowing mm. that happened because David sees his wife and son in front of a glass window. In front of the glass window. He has this this feeling, this this foreshadowing feeling is there. The movie really doesn't give us a foreshadowing. The movie basically starts us off. There's already a storm. There is a, a little nod to Stephen King's universe with the painting that David's painting. Uh, go ahead. Uh, the paintings are actually movie posters from most of Stephen King's books. Exactly. But yeah, so it ties in. So you know if there's some bad stuff's going to happen. The thing that is different between a movie and a book, one of the main differences when you're first coming to this form of uh, storytelling is that a movie... Nine times out of ten, you've seen a trailer, someone's talked to you about it, you have some sense of knowing what the story is going to be. In the book, all you basically get are a couple paragraphs on the back. And I feel like sometimes you're more prepared or less prepared for what is actually going to happen. So in the book, I feel like the storm being such a major part of a novella. The novella, it's not a lot of words in a novella as compared to a novel. You would expect the storm to take up a large percentage if it was going to be an important part, but it really wasn't important. It was just the thing that happened. Well, there's also a challenge when you transfer a book to a movie. You don't have the luxury of looking at internal monologue. You don't have that luxury of exposition. I think some of Stephen King's strongest writing was the description of the storm. That doesn't translate well. Exactly. Exactly. And in the book, we get a sense of who David is. We get that sense of foreshadowing um, because we don't have a trailer. So we know something bad's going to happen because it's a Stephen King novel and we've read the back of the book. But really, that foreshadowing is a really important component. And we don't get that in the in the movie. What we do get is nobody talking. For the first little bit of the of the of the movie, sure. which was which kind of sets a tone. There's mm -hmm. definitely sets a uh, a feel of it, um, but without that internal monologue, it 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 isn't quite as compelling, at least to begin with. I didn't find the beginning of the movie nearly as interesting as the beginning of the book. I'll also say this: when I first read this, this is maybe ten years ago or so. I was impressed with the way Stephen King sets up anxiety. There's a scene that doesn't happen in the movie where there are power lines that are down and the sun is just around these power lines. As an adult, I look at this and go, oh my God, he's going to electrify himself and this is going to be terrible. And he's around this the entire time and the father's keeping an eye on him. But it does set up that, oh, I'm uncomfortable, I'm uncomfortable, I don't like this. Yeah. So I will see Stephen King is really good at that for all the problems I do have with Stephen King. He sets mood really well and he writes people really well. Mm -hmm. I feel like the stuff with the kid and the power lines, um, it definitely added to that sense of mood and that sense of unease. But to me, it was all it was the beginning herald of a duality that I found throughout the entirety of both the book and the movie. It's one thing I think that they actually kept and did well in the adaptation was you had safe versus not safe. And here you have an unsafe thing. These power lines, you know, the things on the ground, the snakes, 
that are very, very dangerous, but they're not dangerous if you're not near them. So it is both the illusion of safety and the illusion of danger because of your placement in the physical space that they take up. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And, and I thought that was really interesting, especially seeing, again, the duality, the mother's reaction to it versus the father's. Mm-hmm. And Stephen King... <sighs> Stephen King has a way of talking about women that sometimes I don't particularly like. Yes. Um, <laughs> but in the, so, and, and okay, so of course we have the mother who's, you know, overly fearful and the father who's, I think, a kind of overly blasé about the power lines there. But it's an interesting contrast between when they're at the window. So the father is set up as the expert. Oh, I know what's dangerous and what's not. Where his wife, oh, she doesn't see the danger of the window, and yet she freaks out about freaks out about the danger of the power lines. Exactly. So again, that idea of what is safe and what isn't, and where we all draw our lines, and and yeah, I thought that was it. And to me, that was again two things in a row, both mm-hmm. foreshadowing about what was going to continue on. So in in the in the movie, not quite so much. But that's also again, it's hard to translate when you have so much of this being internal, and a lot of this is character setting. Definitely. Who is David? Why do we want to care about him? Why do we care? Yes. And the next character that we're introduced is to the neighbor. Brent Norton. Norton. Oh my gosh. I really liked his character as a foil for David in both the book and in the movie. Played in the movie by... Andre. Andre. I can't can't say. Brower? Yes. From Homicide Life on the Streets and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And he's so great in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And it's so fun to see him in a different role here. No, we're not getting paid to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, I I thought that the casting was interesting there. I Mm -hmm. liked that it was a little against type because in, in the book it didn't seem... Like that would be an African-American person? He isn't. Um, It's never explicitly stated, but this isn't the first time that's happened in a Stephen King adaptation. Well, and I also think it's a product of the time. In Mm. 1980, in that part of the West... Maine. Yes, Maine. I was going to say East Coast. But yeah, maybe, maybe not. But I I thought, again, with the movie made in 2007, it was nice to see that they'd updated and diversified the cast a little bit. So I appreciated that. And of course, the actor himself is amazing. So, okay, so anyways, we get introduced to him. I love the scene of him cursing at his uh, chainsaw. That was great. Yeah. Yeah, you know, very believable and understandable, and uh, David's moment of deciding whether or not he's going to help. And um, I also started at this point keeping track of the number of beers. (laughs) Yes. There is quite a bit of beer drinking in this. There's a lot of beer drinking, and I don't have in front of me, um, and I don't care enough to look it up, but I, I wonder how many beers it counts to be both drunk and then, like, not just drunk, but, like, stupidly drunk, and mm. how often you'd have to pee it out, and <laughs> I just, like, it just seemed excessive, and I don't know if that's part of the macho bravado thing or if that is just because I'm not a beer drinker, if it seemed excessive This is much heavier in the book. So in the movie, you know, it's not nearly played up as much, but later on we have the character of Ollie and he drinks a lot of beer, but it's stated that he's been drinking and he can't get drunk as much as he would like to. Again, that duality, the intoxicated versus sober Mm. and who is and who isn't drinking, I found really interesting. And we have David's wife talking about his drinking um, before he even leaves. And then we get down into the town and who is drinking and who isn't. And I just, again, probably a product of the time in 1980 it probably wasn't as big of a deal to have a couple beers before you drove down a hill with your kid Um, speaking of the time it was interesting looking at this book
joke, and they had just enacted this law where you can't throw away a beer can. It's now part of the recycling thing. It's like, oh, yeah, back then when we didn't have these environmental ideas. Interesting. Yes. Okay. I didn't know that. So um, anything else about the interaction between David and Norton before they get down the hill? Um, as I said, I, I think you made this point. It, they do act as a good foil. Um, Norton, at some points, he is a little bit more sympathetic in the book. He's much less sympathetic. Uh, in the book, it is noted that he is a widow, and he's got kind of an eye on David's wife. So yeah. there's a little bit of that that also adds to the tension. They do bring this up fairly fairly naturally in the movie with exposition dialogue. Yeah. So yeah. that was well translated. Yeah. Yeah, the fact that he was a lawyer and they butted heads in the past. But... He's still neighborly. David's still neighborly, still going to give him a ride. I think that in this case, we have, again, that duality of the us versus them, the neighbors. The out-of-towners the versus out of the locals. Right, but at least he's going to help Norton out because they're in, in some ways, they're in it together, even if they are separate. And it also sets up David as, like, the really nice guy you want to root for because he's willing to let these grievances go. Yeah, yeah. Now, in the book... It is a point of contention that Norton lost his case. That isn't the same in the movie. In yes. the movie, they're just really bitter and they're going to let it go, which is kind of interesting when they finally get into town and Norton is taking care of David's son for a little while. A little bit, yeah, helping him grocery shop. I yeah. found that was, he, he was definitely more sympathetic right then, you know, helping the kid push the cart and, and putting the stuff in it, and for sure. Yeah. So anyways, we're at the store. It's a little weird. There's some stuff going on. We have a lot of characters being introduced at this point. Yes. Oh my God, so many characters. And I noticed, and I... I apologize for those of us listening, those of you listening. I had a notebook and I had meticulous notes taken about names and people, and I don't know what happened. It is lost in my house. I'm going to blame my daughter because she's not here to defend herself and she's six. <laughs> um, maybe the cat. But the name of the, the cashier girls, it was it was new and different. They like She was a new character. Yeah. And then um, and we did more with her. Yeah. yeah. So she's just barely mentioned in the book. Right. In the movie, she's got a little bit of a backstory where and she then was she's dating. got a romance and yeah. yeah, a much bigger character. And I thought I bumped on it because I thought, oh my god, there are already so many characters. Did yeah. we really need to add another character to care about? Or was this the film's way of again diversifying and giving us a female and giving us somebody who was more sympathetic? You know, because when you put people in peril, you have to care about them or, or it doesn't resonate as an emotional place. Yes, and so uh, Private Jessup is a completely new character. Yes, definitely. And that, that whole part of them together and then what happens to him and, and him being part of the sacrifice. But we can get a little bit more into that as, as things deteriorate. So, Okay, so now we get to the introduction of the mist. The mist is coming. It's bizarre. They all know it's bizarre. Norton... David and Billy leave the wife behind. Mm -hmm. They go into town and they're in the cashier section. All these new characters come in and then the mist arrives. We get a character running into the store. His nose is bleeding and this is the start of, oh no, this is something more than what we thought it might be. Um, again, that sense of foreshadowing, that impending doom. We don't know what it is. Fear of the unknown. I think one of the things that both the book and the movie did well was the, the idea of the fear of the unknown. You know, what's scarier than pitch dark? <laughs> mist, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that scary mist. Because it's not sparkling. That is said over and over in the book. It is not a sparkly mist. Yeah, I didn't quite 
get that. So I was okay with them changing it mm. in the movie because it would have been really hard to translate. And also, again, product of the time, when you talk about something scary sparkling, I instantly go to a twilight place and then I'm angry and bitter. Oh, so. <laughs> Okay, so while we are in the store, uh, the mist comes out, we get this warning, the sirens start going on. Mm -hmm. We've had some more foreshadowing with a lot of army personnel. Uh, It's hinted at. Now, here is a major change that happened in the movie. Originally, they were going to show the scientists working on whatever they were working on. It's the Arrowhead Project. And what causes this mist to malfunction as it does is they were working on planetary dimensional travel. Uh, There's a lightning strike, it surges, and the mist goes out of control. I am really, really glad that they did not put that scene into the movie because it is so corny. Well, and not to mention the fact that part of what makes it scary is that we don't know. Yeah. I'm okay with not knowing. That's not why I didn't like this. It wasn't the... <laughs> Oops, sorry. Did I skip to the end? Um, it, it wasn't... A bit of foreshadowing from <laughs> It wasn't that unknowing that made it as, you know, un- unenjoyable for me. I kind of liked the not knowing. Yeah. I felt like it was okay. And there's there's different ways of telling stories and you, you can either show the audience something and then the characters have to figure it out or you can figure it out along with the characters. Yeah. And uh, both of those things are used in various degrees of um, success depending on the story. one of those scenes that could be cheesy so easily and just destroy the mood. Right. Well, and then you'd be moving away from David. But I liked... Another thing I liked about both the book and the movie was they pretty much stayed with the main character. We didn't have a lot of other things going Although in the movie we did. We had Crazy Witch Lady in the bathroom. Okay, so (laughs) Mrs. Comedy, if you want to talk about dualities, I found this character to be really bizarre. One, she's pagan, but she's also very Christian. She talks about Christian judgment and God, and yet... She is set up as a witch constantly. She's the witch of the city. I feel like they couldn't make her the straight-up witch like she was in the book because either that would be too cliché or not interesting enough. Mm-hmm. And I also think that it was making a point that it made, in 1980s, we had the satanic panic. We had stuff like that in the 70s and the 80s, right? That was much more about the occult. Nowadays, and in 2007, there's some pretty scary fundamentalists out there. And I feel like making the bad guy, one of the bad guys, be this very severe type of fundamentalist Christian was homage to that. I think it was an intentional change to bring in what was currently scary. If you look at the book, there she is a very dualist character. She's described as elephantine and skeletal. Yeah. She's like, the only thing that's consistent is that she's yellow. She is yellow all over the place. <laughs> um, but in her store, she has these animals that have been taxidermied. She's talking about death and judgment. And yet she also calls herself Mother Comedy. Yeah, definitely the, the, the town witch, like you said. I think yeah. the interesting, the color of yellow, you have to wonder, is that um, a symbolic choice or just a memorable choice? It seems know? to be a Stephen King issue. Yeah, that's true. I, I'm pretty sure the little boy in the raincoat who got sucked down yeah, the gutter was, was in a wearing, yellow. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so I also had to introduce Kalia to the Stephen King drinking game. Oh, yes. <laughs> share, share. All right. So there are certain tropes that people have noticed that Stephen King uses over and over again. So if you have a character who is an author or in a creative field, take a drink. If it takes place in Maine, especially Castle Rock or Bangor, take a drink. If a character is recovering from alcohol or drug abuse or is an alcoholic, take a drink. <laughs> so, and then you too will suffer from alcoholism or drug. No, just kidding. So talking about the archetypes of uh, king females, they're either the good mother, take a drink. Um, they're the evil witch, take a drink. And that's one of the issues I think we both have with this particular character. She reminds me a lot of Hecate or Kali Ma in that sense that she's this death goddess. She's also this mother person. And I don't think they ever quite really figured out how to deal with this person because she is such a bizarre mix of Christianity and paganism. I would agree. And I think that it's easy to take two things that are, are either un known or under not widely understood and then make them scary too because yeah. um you know there's a lot of scary stuff in connection with paganism but um a lot of pagans are not scary people at all and uh, so another stephen king drinking game if he makes fun of organized and fundamentalist christianity right again this change didn't surprise me that they made her more fundamentalist mm -hmm. and um she she did seem more like a real person and less like a caricature in the movie than in the book. In the book, she seemed... She's more archetypal. Yes, definitely. Um, and whereas in the movie, you're like, oh my god, yes, I have talked... That lady has come to my door and asked me if I believe that punishment was God's way of... No, you know, okay, like, for real. <laughs> okay. But if we want to talk more, since we're kind of talking about women and changes, let's talk about sexy McSexy Pants, lady, and whether or not David's going to have a little affair randomly in the middle of all of this drama. Um <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> well, well, yes. Sorry. Have you read so the book? So we have Amanda, and she has a much bigger role in the movie. And the movie, they don't have an affair, but she is definitely taking the mother-wife role. Oh, yeah. For sure. And, and not just caretaking of the child, but caretaking of him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's sympathetic and blah, blah, blah. In the, in the book, she, she shows up to, to hand over the gun that her husband gives her because he worries about her when he travels. And David's interior monologue is like, hey, if I had a wife like her, I wouldn't travel. And you're like, ew, dude. Like, at this yeah, point. Yeah, ew, dude does not end there. No, it doesn't. But it, <laughs> she, his wife wasn't even dead. It wasn't even all that scary yet. Like, you know, and I, I've heard. I have seen people on the internet who are like, well, of course, you know, sex is how people respond to trauma. And okay, that's fine, whatever. But he was having icky thoughts before the real trauma started. So I'm not giving him a pass. I think he's gross. And I understand foxhole mentality of doing things that you wouldn't normally do when you're in extreme circumstances. But I found the whole sex scene in the book to be gratuitous, totally unnecessary. And it... If we're building David up to be somebody that we're rooting for, I felt like that felt like something that maybe the male readers of the book might root for. Well, yeah, get some while the getting's good. But it, it just, it really, it bothered me. So one of the issues, and the reason why I don't automatically hate him for having sexy thoughts about a person is just because you're married doesn't mean that your libido dies. 
Fair enough. So, I don't hate him for having the sexy thoughts. <laughs> I found it gross, but I don't hate him. I understand. I just severely dislike him for going through with it. Yeah. Well, here's another issue. So movies, you have a very limited amount of time in order to make a point. So there's a lot of shorthand. When you have a main character, you want to try and make them as sympathetic as possible so you don't lose your audience. In a book, you are allowed to have a much more complicated character. So if this sex scene didn't happen, would he be the too perfect character? In the book, you mean? Yeah. I I don't find him a perfect character not just because of that, but mm-hmm. but another thing. But are you saying that they, the sex thing is there to make him not 100% perfect? Yeah, he is a little bit more complicated because of this. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, <laughs> we got we got our first fight going here. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I will grant your premise that that definitely takes away from his perfection. Because we have so much I feel much like there were him. other ways for him maybe to not be uh, seen as perfect. And also the fact that it the fact that it happened so fast, the fact that it, it meant nothing and yet it was it but you know what it did? It felt to me like it was just this is this is the thing that he's got an itch and of course he needs it scratched and oh she's here and ta-da. The only part about it that I liked was that she initiated it in the book. She could feel him, because I don't have the book in front of me, but she could feel his eyes on her or whatever. And she said, if this is a thing that we need to deal with, then let's just go deal with it. Which was, you know, I mean, go girl, right? You know, um, also sin. you're married and it's gross that you're cheating on your husband. I'm not okay, giving her but a pass too. the sin that gets to me is in the book, this is very male fantasy. Yes. <laughs> you know, that, okay, the girl has sex and she, you know, she orgasm and she's scratching his back and doing all that. Okay, Stephen King. Hold on, I need a second. <laughs> <laughs> Having a moment with thoughts of women, I guess. Okay. So, um, yeah, it did. It felt very male gazy. Yeah. I, I did appreciate, like I said, that she... What, Do you the want one... to explain the term male gaze? Oh, that's... Okay. Yes, I suppose. So, we are talking about academic subjects here. And for those who are not English majors, like us two nerds... Okay, so the idea of the male gaze has to do with when things are specifically written in a way to... Appeal? Appeal and for men in a way that men would understand in a different way than women would. Um, And it has to do with focusing on things in our patriarchal society that are more male-dominated things. So if you want to get nice, like, visual idea of what this would look like. If you've ever seen the Transformers film, you know, we have one female character and she is the most competent person in the entire film. She's working on a car. But do we really look at her as somebody who's competent working on a car and a character in her own right? Or is she there for Sam to kind of go, oh my God, she's so hot and I'm getting a boner. Yeah. Is she there for the audience, you know, the male audience? So it's it's basically women who are being depicted or who are added in specifically to appeal to the masculine heterosexual perspective. Yeah, so Marilyn Monroe with her dress coming up, is this something that appeals to women or something that appeals to men? Right, and it's it's not saying that just because it appeals to men, it's automatically bad. What we're saying is that it's disproportionate. Mm. And um, when you have token 
females or the female is, or the woman is only given to be certain parts of a personality. They're not full-fledged characters. They're simply there so that the box is checked or that the men can have some boobs to watch bounce around in the action film. That's male gaze. I feel like sometimes Stephen King falls victim to the male yeah. gaze thing. So male gaze in itself isn't that bad. It's just an academic term. It, however, can be very problematic in how it's used. Yeah. There we go. The more you know. Okay, so uh, any more thoughts about our little rendezvous um, in, the, in the dark? Yeah, so I also had the same thing wherein he's looking at her and he's like, oh no, he's going to fuck her. Yeah. Don't, don't. It was Chekhov's boner. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so but, we both had the same reaction. Uh, but before that, I mean, you know, things do get ramped up in terms of, of uh, scariness. So we are actually jumping we are jumping a lot. Quite ahead. Yeah. We haven't even gotten David going to the basement, which he does to get his son, you know, cope because his son is starting to feel a little traumatized. So here's another duality. Here's another bit of character, you know, development is early on his son is very curious about the world. He isn't frightened about any of this danger. He's excited. He's like, oh my god, power lines, look at this. And it's the adults who have to go, honey, chill. At this point, he starts freaking out about the storm. He misses his mom. And he almost totally becomes catatonic at certain points. Yeah. Well, and I, I think he, he becomes like a non-character. He's basically just there to, for, to continue to give David motivation. Right. It would have been interesting if this book had been written with David didn't have a son in the store. You know, would mm-hmm. he have been a little bit more foolhardy? Would the fighting have happened sooner? Or, you know, would they have attempted the escape at all if there hadn't been the little boy? So this also goes a little bit back to Amanda of her role in the book is to be the surrogate mom. At one point, she comforts Billy. She has a line of, well, I don't even know him. And David said, oh, it's okay. He needs the mom. That's your role now. Yeah. So again, this this is a little bit nicer in the movie because they don't have to have all this you know, awkwardness going on. She's just somebody who helped, but she has such a bigger role in the mill in the film. Yeah. So in the book, she's not treated evilly because she fulfills that mother role, which are, uh... all right. Again, here we go back to duality. We have David in the basement and we get this very tribalistic look again. So we have the in-group versus the out-group. We oh, have the yes. locals versus locals the tourists. And the educated versus the not educated. Yeah, so blue-collar versus the artistic elitist. Right. <laughs> you know. Um, Which is funny because in the book, he's like, yeah, I'm kind of a failure. My father was the great artist. I just do commercial but stuff. But he still has the reputation, I yeah. think. Which is interesting because, again, when we're playing with these duality things, I think that there is a little bit of subversion. It world isn't black and white. It's yeah. not just good versus evil the the neighbor is not just an outsider but also a neighbor you mm-hmm. know um and so in this way david is an artist and he's has that reputation he can't fit in as well with the blue collar guys but he's the one with the four by four truck at the end you know so, and he was the one with the chainsaw at the beginning yes and he is definitely set against the higher level lawyer yeah definitely i feel like it's like a it's like the best parts of machoism but tempered enough to make it accessible for everyone. <laughs> so this also speaks to action versus impotence. Yes. So you have these blue collar guys who are doing something extremely foolhardy. Mm-hmm. And they do it because they need to do something because they're scared. Right. And I thought that it was interesting because we have this idea of doing something because you're scared, doing something to be doing something, and where... Real courage is. Well, but where the line between that and and 
you know, being productive with it and not being productive. So, mm-hmm. ba- I'm sorry, I'm going back to the sex. David, <laughs> they had sex because they needed to, to feel something else. They needed that distraction. They needed that release, blah, 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 blah. But nobody else was getting hurt, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can argue about the sanctity of both of them having marriage vows. I don't want to get into that. But but in this case, these men were putting somebody in danger. They were making irrational choices that had much more tangible And you also get responses. youth versus experience. Yes. You know, you have this, you know, idiot 18-year-old who doesn't understand that there are bigger things in life. Yeah. And so the adults... And some of them have suction cups. <laughs> <laughs> and so the adults should have been the adults in this and tempered him a little bit more. So we have the death of Norm the teenager. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. This, and, and the first time we really see... Tentacles and and what is it? And oh my God. And I don't know about you, but when I was reading the book, I thought, okay, so this is the thing that's out there. I didn't quite get that we were going to have other things Mm -hmm. out there. It was almost comforting. Oh, okay. So this is the big scary thing. And now we know we can hurt it because they do hurt it a little bit. Okay. You know, I was fully prepared, but of course not. You know, there's other things out there. So yeah. So Ollie is much more active in the movie. And again, this is where you get that, you know, action versus impotence. It's the wise person who doesn't want to act and say, no, this is dangerous. But then when there's danger, that's the person who does act. Right. And then you have the foolhardy, you know, blue collar, however you want to call them, who frees up when they're the most needed. Yeah. And again, lots of beer. <laughs> so comes, much beer. Yeah. Very at quickly after that. And, and you also, while they're all having this little adventure, the inside um, group is getting there. Like, he calls them the Flat Earth group. Yeah. You know, and, and I thought that was very believable. People would break down into their little groups. I actually thought it was it was showcased pretty well in both the book and the movie about the little different groups of who's where and, and how that just, it happens. People group. So this was also a, another interesting sort of section, and I could not help but see Mrs. Carmody as juxtaposed to Norm, because they're both irrational in very different ways. Mm -hmm. So you have Norton, the lawyer, who overly rationalizes this, and you know that he's afraid in the book. You know he deep down has this fear, but he doesn't want to. And so we're going to be... Oh, I have no idea if there's a good term for this, but we're going to be so rational as to be beyond it. We're going to be into conspiracy theory. Yes. Well, and, and his conspiracy theory is that it's a joke. It's a hoax. They're all playing a joke on him. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting because, and I thought it was apropos that he was called the Flat Earth Society. Yeah. It's like even when you are given evidence and presented with facts, you, nope, nope. Can't be real because because I don't trust you. And that was the thing. It wasn't really that it couldn't be real. It was that you guys are playing a joke on me because I'm the outsider. I don't trust this person in a, in a place of authority who's giving me information. And if you don't trust the person in authority giving you the information, then you won't trust the information. And then, well, I don't want to get political, but um, <laughs> yes. And I thought that was that felt very timely, yes. actually. Um, even you know, this was 2007. So let's. Think Think about what the politics were like here in the U.S. in 2007, but also in 1980 with Reagan. I mean, you know, you have this idea of who is your authority and are you even open to getting information from that authority? And if you just say no, then it doesn't matter how factual it is or how many dead pieces of alien body that they show you. This is a very long running issue. So this is kind of a human thing. What I find really interesting about Norton is he is set up as the lawyer and yet when we first see him, he's cussing out his chainsaw, his very expensive chainsaw. 
So it's that weird dichotomy between supposedly to be the rational person, the one who should be looking at evidence, Mm -hmm. and yet he lets his fear completely overwhelm him, and bad stuff happens. Well, right. And I I do feel like the book is weighted against the intellectuals in a certain way because his fancy, expensive chainsaw is the one that's broken. But my, you know, Mm. little bit old-fashioned, more rustic chainsaw is going to work. It's my 4x4 that's going to get us here and there. And the other thing, it's, it's, you know... And yet David's contrasted against Jim and the other... Exactly. Again, so it's a fun play of duality. I give it that. Um, Then we have the boss. The boss, um, Brown, I think his name was. He was just... to be a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. And that's fine. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of foils that mm-hmm. is, you know, and, and that's going to happen when you have an ensemble and you have a lot of people and then, yeah. So he is the figure of petty authority and he gets his in the end, which is also interesting. We can talk about the messages and, and why we think mm-hmm. who lives is or who lives, but, um, or doesn't. so when I first saw this movie, I was instantly just, Oh, okay. We're all going to go crazy. You know, comedy pagan person again when i watched this film the second time maybe i become more cynical but i was like yeah that could happen when people get scared that'll happen they'll start sacrificing each other yeah you put a couple people in a room together and they start inventing ways to kill each other that that's you know and that's that's the theme that the i feel like what stephen king is telling us is that um the veneer of civilization is only so thin Mm. and underneath it we're all assholes yeah so this is very lord of the flies moment yeah it's depressing as fuck. Okay. <laughs> and there goes the PG again. There goes the PG. Yes. Okay, so in the movie, Norton just leaves. We don't know what happens to him, but we have another character introduced who is this biker who decides to go out and try and get a gun. And he is a very, you know, he's got a tiny little bit, but, you know, he's the rough and tumble biker. Mm-hmm. And yet he's one of the most heroic characters. It is a very kind of Jesus, I'm going to sacrifice myself for the group. And he's hoping to live, but he doesn't expect to live. Yeah, he doesn't expect to, which is interesting. Yeah. And, then, and then they get more information. I, I like the visual of the blood on the string. Yeah. Um, um, and it is much more violent in the movie. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. And so every single violent scene that you see in the movie is done three times more than in the book. Yeah. The gore is is ratcheted up. Very much so. Huh. Well, and then even like when they when they do take their little group over to the pharmacy and all the spiders and mm. um, that was scary enough in the in the book, but it was it was very graphic. And the, another change it, it, starting with the military. There's an MP over there. He has his you know final moments. We get more in the movie about the Arrowhead. So it's interesting. A lot of times authors will drop little breadcrumbs along your reading path. And if you pick them up and put them in your backpack, when you get to a certain point, you can spread them out and you can have a meal and you can say, look, I understand. I I saw where we were going because I had these little hints along the way. But some of the breadcrumbs are obvious and some of them aren't. And that's fair. And I think as long as they're there, even if you miss them, when you go back, you can see, okay, this was laid in. In the book, it w- they were either not very well laid, I don't think. I think we got the idea of Arrowhead, but it was very, very subtle. Actually, I'll, I'll take that back. It's not that they weren't well laid. They were very subtle. And in the movie, they were really obvious. And I can't, I don't know which one I preferred to kind of have it be more obscure. And I don't really know if that's the thing or not. Or if it was like, oh, okay, well, at least it's a little comforting to know that this is the thing. I'm glad they left that scene out that you discussed earlier. But I I, I don't know. What do you think about how how I think obvious it was making it? to the genre. Again, you don't have as much time in a movie. There's a lot of stuff going on. And so you have to be a little bit more direct with your audience. Fair enough. 
in the book, you have much more time to go, huh, well, where is this going? And ponder certain things that happen. I think they did need to add a little to it. If they hadn't, it would have been fine. But I am not unhappy with the introduction of Private Jessup. Go ahead. Yeah. So Tell me about what your thoughts on, on Private <laughs> Jessup. Well, okay. So we're at the point where we get the romantic interlude between Private Jessup and the high school girl, uh, who is given a much bigger role in the film. So I did like the pacing of the movie. You, you do have these bloody moments and then, okay, let's breathe a sigh of relief. Let's humanize these characters so we can care about them a little bit more. Oh my God, another big thing happens. Mm-hmm. You know, for pacing purposes, it was fine. And then it does make the tragedy that happens that much more graphic and heartbreaking towards the end. Yeah. Whereas you have no idea about the MPs in the book. They hang themselves and you're just like, oh, well, that's a thing. Yeah. Was it fear or guilt? I thought it was guilt. I, I agree. But since that we didn't get a whole lot, I, I thought, you know, it could have the been... The most bizarre part is that their hands were tied behind their back. And in the book, it is theorized by Ollie that they tied each other's hands, I guess, sort of stepped through it so the hands were behind them and set it up so that they could hang themselves. You know, the noose was already there and they did this, which is really bizarre. And that's never explained. I thought the idea was that they did that so that they couldn't have second thoughts and try to get free. Uh, quite possibly. Kind of like a suicide pact, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not just we're going to jump off this chair together and, and hang, but we're going to make damn sure that n- nobody gets to change their mind. <laughs> it is pretty hard to unnoose yourself when you're in that position. Fair enough. <laughs> just overkill, maybe? <laughs> yeah, so that was just a weird thing. I was like, okay, I guess you need to explain it. But it, it was added information that just didn't really need to be there. If yeah. I was the editor, I would have probably cut that out and just go, okay, they hang themselves. Unless there's done. a reason. Yeah. 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 And, or a red herring. I don't know if they, I, I wasn't sure at one point if that was there to make you think that maybe they had been murdered. Mm. Somebody did that to them. Yeah, that's a thought as well. But when would that have happened? Who would have... I'd, exactly. Um, a yeah. red herring without anything else. And and yeah. And, and let's just be honest. If there had been a serial killer in there, somebody killing people along with all this other stuff, that would have been really interesting as well. <laughs> that would have been way too much. I, I don't know. I, I mean, potentially. But we do have the suicide of the old lady. Yes. So and there are lots there of suicides. Are more suicides in the book. Yeah, there are. So uh, there's just the one. So you're talking about drinking in the movie. There's just a quick thing where the boss outs Ollie as a possible recovering alcoholic, mm-hmm. which is another dick move on his point. But they're bees. In the book, Ollie is drinking, but he's not getting drunk. Whereas the other two blue collar people, they, they just get pass smashed. Out. Yeah. 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 And then later on, you get the wino aisle. The wino aisle. <laughs> then we have our next big, huge thing. The insects come in. Oh, yeah. And there's no hiding from this anymore. We all have very graphic evidence that this is happening. Right. I think it was one of the things that he said in the book was one of the most scary things I'll ever see was the one thing flying on fire through the, you yeah. know, and I thought, really? Like, that's the thing? Like, that that one? I mean, considering that the other stuff and then all the stuff to come that happens after, but that's the one scary thing. Which, I mean, sure, um, we all have the, the weird things that scare us to death that maybe don't scare other people. But I just thought it was like an interesting random little detail of David to be like, this so, is the moment. This is the most scary thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Do you find life. an intelligent enemy scarier than an unintelligent enemy? Oh, now I feel like we're talking about the 2016 election again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
did not bring that up. Just, yeah, I know. Okay, saying. sorry. La la la. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we um, do agree on those sets of politics. But yeah, in there's no mention whether they're intelligent or not. They're just like well, sort any of insectoid. Them, really? Yeah. But in the book, he's like, you know, these dumb little eyes that are yeah. staring and they're just creepy and they're animalistic. There's no malicious intent. You're just yeah, food. You're food. <laughs> I don't like birds. I have a fear of birds. So I, I'm with him. I don't like flying things. I don't like flying evil things, a.k.a. birds. And yeah, no, so I'm with him. I just thought it was interesting that that was the thing for him that was like super, super scary. Okay, so this is when Miss Car- uh, Carmody really gets her following is an insect lands on her. And right. it's crawling up her dress and then flies, flies away. Yeah, yeah. So, so she's, she's spared. touched. Yeah, yeah. So... Why do you think that happens in the movie? Why do I think? Why do I personally think yes. that, that happened in the movie? Um, ugh, I crazy people don't think that they're crazy. They all have their rationale, That's and right. I think that this was so that we could understand maybe a little bit of her rationale. Look, obviously, I'm special. Mm-hmm. Look, I was touched. I have this thing because we're already in the realm of supernatural stuff. It's maybe been set up that she's crazy, like from the get go, mm. you know. And I'm not trying to be ableist here. It's set up that she is mentally ill. It, she there's a problem there with her. I don't want to get in trouble here, but you know she's it, it should have been medicated maybe. And I, I don't think that that's subtle. So I lost my train of thought by trying to be very <laughs> PC here. But um, I, I think that that's what it's there for is to is to kind of give her her own fodder to give her explanation. And oh, okay, because it, we are in the supernatural world, she could have been right. Like the movie could have or the book, it could have taken a turn where. And, and that would have been in genre. It would have been in keeping with Stephen King. If it turns out, no, this really is a, a pagan thing that needs to have a sacrifice. And then they all disappear. And we go back to... I mean, I, not saying that that would have been a better book, but I could see a version of it. I think that would have been a more it. interesting movie if that ambiguity had been there. Well, there are there. a lot of ways that this could have been more interesting. <laughs> but but you know what I mean? I'm just saying that we are in a supernatural world. You can't mm. rule anything out. Once you start having crazy things that are supernatural and you've opened that door, you really don't get to be picky and choosing and say, well, no, that's too crazy or that's too silly or that's too supernatural because it's not anymore. So the unsupernatural explanations might be that because these are, they hypothesize that these insecty things go by smell. So it landed on her clothes. It's not as... I guess, heavy as if it landed on her skin, her scent. Um, It could be that she just stayed perfectly still. And when you do that, you don't get as much interest from an insect. Yeah, or that she's wearing yellow. Oh, oh. there we go. But in the the movie, she wasn't nearly as yellow. She was not nearly as yellow. That is true. (laughs) That is very true. Yeah, Yeah, no hat. (laughs) It's a bit of interesting, oh, she's praying and the insect left and you have her followers. But I also think that's a lot of confirmation bias. And if you want to get into, you know, crazy fundamental, crazy, I keep saying that word. I'm sorry, you guys, I'm learning. Um, If you want to get into ignorant um, people who believe things that are batshit insane, um, then you have that idea of confirmation bias. The thing that I really disliked about her characterization is it just reminded me of the times when we had witch burnings, when there was all this, when you'd have midwives who really did have a lot of medicine, who had a lot of folk knowledge, and they were just dismissed. And so here we have that archetype, and unfortunately, she has, you know, issues. And we can't tell if she's really pagan or she's Christian or what the heck's going on with her. But that's what made me sad. Of It's the scapegoat. Yeah. 
even though she turns out to be the one doing that. Just from a historical perspective, nothing is without context here. Right, yeah. All our love to the witches and pagans listening. (laughs) We do love witches. Oh, indeed. Okay, Okay. so we get our suicide. Um, David and the others decide that an escape is necessary. Before we... Because I feel like we're kind of getting towards the end. And Mm -hmm. the the book and the movie have very, very different endings. But before we, we get to that, I just wanted to say... That the the movie was directed, and I can't pronounce people's names. I'm just gonna say Frank Darabont. There you go. See, that's why I make her do it. And he also directed the Shawshank Redemption and the Green Mile. And he'd gotten permission from Stephen King, you know, to do this one as well. And I thought that was interesting because he had a, a history with Stephen King. But both of those movies are so different in tone, you know, um, and talk about the endings and the fact that the endings of both of those movies are different than the books. Of course, all endings are a little bit different. Mm. But this ending is such a departure. I thought that that was interesting. The other thing to note about that director is his director's cut, his version, his idea for this movie was black and white. And I thought, again, we get into the duality, we get in the light versus dark, we get in, like, where are the shades of gray, of morality, and also just of of civilization and and that veneer of civilization. But apparently, it's way scarier in black and white, and I'm really glad I didn't watch it in black and white. (laughs) We talked briefly about trying to get a hold of it. Did you I was not able to get a hold of it, but I do want to see the black and white I saw some stills from the black and white. There's an article online that I read, and you guys, it's very intense in, in the severity of it. And you think that maybe not seeing the red blood would make it less gory and and it it does because you're not seeing all the various colors of the gore but it makes it it makes it very intense to have just the dark and the light and you don't really know what it is and because of the way it was filmed i also thought this was interesting they filmed it in 37 days on a on a set tv producing and directing um stylistics of the shots the the film crew from the shield the television Mm -hmm. show the shield you see that it was very close it was very intimate the way it was shot and i thought that it just added so well to the feelings that the 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 story was trying to purvey so before we get into the endings i just wanted to make a note that i found those changes and that those decisions really interesting i approve i approve i know that this director really is waiting around at home for me to approve and there you go you have it it's interesting you bring up that black and white because the whole thing that we're talking about with this as i guess our overreaching theme is the duality we do have this conversation between david and amanda you know, David says, this woman is dangerous. This is something bad is going to happen. Again, setting himself up as the person who can see danger where a woman can't. And Amanda has people are decent. Yeah. You know, so how do you view humanity? Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I like to think that people are decent, inherently decent on the inside. Stephen King would argue with me. That's probably why I don't really like a lot of Stephen King stuff. I mean, you know. So this is spelled out in the movie. And again, you know, movies have to be a little bit more obvious. On the nose. Yeah. So I don't mind that spelled out in the movie because, again, you're getting a lot of information very quickly. You have to process it in a book. You have much more time to sit there and reflect and think. Um, So I do like that that is explicitly stated in the movie Mm -hmm. because I changed between the two times I watched this film. You know, the first time I was Amanda, I was like, no, people are decent. This is craziness. Stephen King doesn't know people. This is crazy. <laughs> crazy and non-ableist sense again. <laughs> and the second time I watched it, I go, no, people are kind of kind of problematic at times. See, I struggle. I I want to believe that people are inherently good. I, I, 
and I think part of it is that I want to be the kind of person that believes that. All evidence to the contrary. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's happening in our world right now. And it would be very easy to just be like, yeah, everybody's garbage, the end. But I feel like if I if I do that, if I give into that, then I'm I'm not leaving myself any room for hope. And I'm not and then I'm I'm getting rid of my responsibilities because if everything's crap, then there's no point in, in trying. But if people are inherently good or there is reason for hope or it's all not lost yet, then we have reasons to keep going. And I can't not keep fighting. This is going to be a very, very heavy conversation for a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Sorry, y'all. Let's go back to the monsters. (laughs) But speaking of heavy, depressing crap, let's talk about the ending. (laughs) Well, do you want to talk about what happens with the pharmacy? Oh, I guess we can touch on it briefly. I, it, it, it is very close to what happened in the book. Yeah, they went, they yeah. saw, they were scary. Of but course, they're spiders. I don't know if that's part of your Stephen King drinking. I do drinking really is, love the older sp- teacher. Oh, yeah, she's kick-ass. I liked her in the book with the raid. Yeah. You know, that was cool. It is, is um, I'm sorry, are spiders part of the Stephen yes. King drinking? Okay, because they should be, because holy crap. <laughs> so this teacher throws a can of peas in this comedy. It's, yeah, to break it up. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a great moment. It's a good... So, yeah, it hits her in the chest. Um, Stephen King is a little bit more explicit. It hits her in the right breast. Of course. Right Male breast. gaze! <laughs> right there! That's. A, can you get more quintessential? <laughs> okay. Yeah, hmm. so we've had flying insects, we've had pterodactyls, we've had Cthulhu tentacles we've had spiders he's basically trying to hit your all your ick spots yeah sure at some point it just gets excessive yeah this is kind of at the point in both the book and the movie i was like okay i get it there's bad stuff out there there's lots of bad stuff there's no rules to what kind of bad stuff they're just bad stuff bad stuff more bad stuff and everybody inside is create is is losing their you know sense of normality everyone gets hit by something different so i don't mind an author especially if you're writing horror if you just have your one trick you, you're going to get a small percentage of people. Right, it's, sure. So, I mean, yeah, you can throw the entire pot of spaghetti at the wall and, and <laughs> you know, I don't know. Okay, yes, we understand. Bad things in the mist. I got it. The mist itself is not bad. It's the things in the mist that will kill you. So here's a question for you. And this is just theorizing here. Um, since this is supposed to be a portal to another dimension, are all these creatures from the same place? I don't know. And I don't care. Like that was the thing. And it, it, we kind of got that it was, and there had been some kind of dimensional rift because of the arrowhead thing. It was way more explicit in the, in the film than in the book. Sure. Either they opened a door and stuff came through or they opened several doors, several things came through. I don't know. Unless, unless this book had ended dramatically different. And then the next book was people pulling the sliders, you know, or a stargate and going into these places to fight the evil things or the, or the not evil things, just the animal scary things. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't care. They're, I don't, and because they weren't, there to symbolize anything except for being scared, scary thing that came out of our um, our imaginations. I, you know, I I don't feel like they're really worth my time trying okay, to. Okay, I don't mind having a whole bunch of different stuff. I you sure, know, especially but, because biology is really diverse. You only get a couple different monsters until the very end when they're in the car ride, and there's some really neat. Scenes yeah, there's like the a movie. dinosaur stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. That so was there's cool. that one that looks like a cliff. It's like, yeah, that is. That is pretty intimidating. Right. I mean, so, and that's fun, but that's all just visual effects stuff. I, to yeah. me, monsters are more interesting when they're symbols. 
You know, uh, mm-hmm. it, the vampire is, is it, it's, a, it's symbolic. It's not just about the blood. It's about the, the life sucking and the life force and the eternalness and the innocence and the da 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 da. And werewolves are about the duality of, you know, your animalistic side and you're not animal. Monsters have meanings. Or they're just CGI or, you know, bad dream drawings that now we made into a movie. So without the meanings, I just, I don't, I'm not as emotionally invested in the monsters at all without seeing them more or understanding them or, they're just they're just nameless nightmare stuff, which is fine and very scary. But I'm not gonna. I apparently we are gonna devend some time on it. But it, <laughs> I certainly wasn't planning on spending time talking about. Well, I mean, you do have what constitutes as something as alien as possible, and so that's why a lot of these kind of monsters tend to be very insectoid or lizard-like, just because those are the things we consider most alien against humans. Sure. You know, this is why uh, Geiger's like really weird alien design is so effective. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it's it's an interesting thing to examine at some point. So we get back from the pharmacy. Uh, most of the group has died. David is there. Our English teacher hero, because we like her, is still around. Ollie, who went with them. They're the survivors. Yes. Now, in the, they here's are another... survivors. They're gonna give up their survivors. You may have noticed Kaylee likes to sing, and yet surviving. she will not go out to karaoke with me. Hmm. hmm. Okay. Moving along. <laughs> so here's another bit that's a lot more explicit in the movie. When we get to the pharmacy, not everybody in the spider webs is dead. We do have a military person who's in a web, and he you know wakes up a little bit to say, "Oh dear God, this is what happens." Yeah. So this, this probably would have been much more exciting of a scene if we hadn't seen it done so much better in Alien, with the cocoons and kill me and you know. Mm. Okay, it's been there, done that. It's, it's spiders. Yeah, yeah it's whatever. a little cliche. I, I, again, by this point, I was just okay. I'm ready. I'm ready to <laughs> get where we're going. Everyone dies. Everyone lives. It ends. Something's going to happen. Something's got to give. Okay, so we return back, um, and you know, you you have a group that is supposed to bring hope. Instead, they bring despair. Uh, there's more outsider and tribalism. This is when Private Jessup is killed by mob rule. Yep, and it is graphic. Yeah, it's very scary. This is scarier than the pharmacy scene to me because this is real and this is mob rule and... This has happened. We have human history to point that this is a thing. Way, way scarier. Yeah, so that's why I ask, you know, do you prefer the intelligent monster or the unintelligent monster? Are we the monster? Well, you know, depending on which book you're reading. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, I don't mind that these monsters are, you know, the, the monster monsters are as bad as they are because you don't need everything to have complexness or sure i just i just enjoy it more when they do yeah but i think it's a great backdrop to having what is well, evil and i think again that duality because yeah. you have these are the monsters and then you have the people but the people are actually monsters too you know i promise I, that the theme will not always be duality when yes. we do these <laughs> <laughs> depends on the next book <laughs> but yeah no i and, and I, again that's the theme and so who really is the monster? Who really is bad? And, and Yeah, so we have Jessup made into a scapegoat. I found it really telling when he's like, but I'm from here. Yeah. And he's screaming that out loud. So you do have that breakdown. But again, yes, exactly. Yeah, so science is evil. to save him. Yeah, science is evil. Hey. <laughs> yeah, we, we both are very pro-science. Yes. Okay, try to leave. And this is when we kill our, you know, messiah figure, our, our witch. Yeah. The witch is dead. Ding dong. Go Ollie. Yeah. And then he has guilt. 
which I thought was interesting. Like, even after all the stuff and what mm-hmm. she was doing, he has guilt. Because, again, we have to... Because Ollie's awesome. We're rooting for him. Yeah. We like Ollie. But he was bullied early on, mm-hmm. you know? So he he's the underdog. He is the action when it's appropriate. You know? Yeah, so he is kind of, you know, David's second in command, really. Yeah, yeah. And so it's, I thought it was really interesting looking at David because he's always looking for other people to lead in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. You know, he's looking at Norton, and he really pushes Norton to, you know, please say something. You're yeah, David, the voice. David wants to be the power behind the throne. <laughs> and, I, and I think that that's part of a, you know, we... we my father once told me anybody who wants to be president probably shouldn't be mm. because if you really want that amount of power or any kind of position of, of authority, then you might want it for not the best reasons, right? You know, it might be the, the power itself that is attracting you to it. And so I feel like we culturally have that idea where it, you almost trust more the guy who's like, oh, no, 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 I'm not running things. I'm mm-hmm. just helping. I'm supporting. And like, you know, I think that if David had been like, I am Superman, I'm in charge, and I'm making all the choices, he wouldn't have been as sympathetic of his character. We wouldn't have been rooting for him as much. We like the idea of somebody who's like, I'm going to be really useful and helpful, but I'm not a glory hound. And everyone who does try to take power dies. Yep. Norton dies. So there's your message right there. You know, the guy who led us into the pharmacy, he dies. Yes. Yeah. David doesn't die. Comedy in, dies. In either of them. So don't be a leader. Yeah. <laughs> right. So here's That's why this is Jennifer's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we have a slight change. Dan, who was kind of a minor character, he's the one who introduces all the horrors, is in the car when they escape. He is not in the book. Yeah. It's just David, Billy, Irene, and Amanda. Yeah. And, you know, there's Ollie, and they do try to make it as tragic as possible, where he does something great. He turns around. He's got that big smile of, I did something awesome. I am not a loser. And then he dies. Yeah. Yeah. And the book, it's so sudden. Yeah, it It, is. Yeah, he's just, like, clawed in half by some sort of lobster. The end. It's it's that almost anticlimactic. I mean, it's very climatic, but it's also... That second shoe dropping kind of a moment. You think it's safe and then it's not. It's very cliche horror movie stuff right yeah. at this point. And then I feel like there's a lot of moments where this really could have gotten super, super cliche. And this was one of those moments. Oh, so, we made it out. Nope. Yeah. The cliche happens. For me, it's more the movie of, I'm going to look at the camera and yeah. be so proud. And there he dies. And there he dies. And the book... I really like that it was much more sudden because it is one of those things where you have no idea who's going to die. Right. It makes it jarring. Yeah. And, and, and it takes away that comfort because, again, as we're going through the book, we're like, okay, this person's going to make it. This person's not. We're mm-hmm. pretty sure this person's safe, blah, blah, blah. Ollie, we thought he was safe. And then no. You know. Okay. Yeah. It serves its purpose to remind us that nobody's safe. So the group dries off. We get the horrorscape. I like the monsters. I like looking at the monsters and going, oh my god, that sucker's Yeah, huge. and the music was really well done at this part. It was very yeah. visually interesting. Of course, we go back to the house, and of course, the wife is dead, and okay, fine, now we can move on. Sure. Yeah, so now we get to the big, big change of endings. I like that you just turned over, you guys, you can't see this, but she just turned over (laughs) her page of notes and her next page is completely empty. She's got seven pages of notes until we get to here. Now, now apparently we're just going to riff. I don't know. I don't know what that means. Yeah, it's it's the ending. So yeah, we are going to riff a little bit on this because we don't really plan too much. Well, no, I'm just saying. Okay. So, okay. First, I read the book. Yes. 
and I did not like the ending. Mm. I was like, oh, this is lame. This is, this is, you didn't know how to end it, so you ended it. Oh, we've Which made it a to a Howard Johnson, and, or whatever we are, and we, we somehow got inside, and we're safe, but then we're going to leave. <laughs> I'm going to leave these notes here. Oh, oh, I totally forgot. Earlier, we were talking about foreshadowing. Uh. Because this was like his story, he had, earlier when he first left the wife at home, and they had, that was the last time I saw my wife, and you're like, oh, God. Like, so there was foreshadowing, so much foreshadowing in the book, but also these little kernels of things about the ending that were kind of laid along there. And I, I didn't like that. I, I just, bleh. but anyway, so now we get to the end of the book and there is no real end and we don't know what it is. Okay. We don't know how far so, it goes. We're just going to keep not going passed out from the Stephen King drinking game. You pass out whenever there's a bad ending because he doesn't know how to end a book. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't, not all Stephen King, here's my hashtag, but, um, but for this case, <laughs> I definitely King. agree. I was just like, this is really disappointing. This is, this is, this is, I don't okay. enjoy this. So okay. for those of you who have not read the book, basically it ends up that it's ambiguous. They're going to keep trying. They're still alive. They're just driving. They're going to maybe find it unless something happens. We don't know. Hopefully someone will find these pages. Well, they are Blah. at one point. Um, he listens to the radio. And yeah, there is a radio signal. Yeah. So supposedly so they've found some place to be sort so, of hold so up. They have somewhere safe. to go. Yeah. So he uh, ends, you know, the second to the last chapter with, you know, I have a destination in mind. Whatever. We're not told what it is. And then right. he's not sure if he heard Hartford or Hope, but whatever. it ends with that. And of course it's Hope. God. <laughs> Damn, how could you end with hope? Oh, I'm just saying, like, but it's but it could be false hope, because it might not actually be hope. It might be Harford, and who the hell knows where those things are. Ah, okay. Okay, traditionally, in most literature, ambiguous endings are good. Yes. Yes. I don't mind ambiguous endings if it matched the rest of the book. It's tonal. And this tone was pathetic. <laughs> so I did not like it. Okay. So but tell then, us how you really feel, Kalia. Yes. But then I sat down to watch the movie. Okay. And I'm watching the movie and I take a break at one point to, I don't know, do something else. And my partner says to me, you're not going to like the ending of this movie. And I said, well, I've, I've read the book. So I know that I don't, I, I didn't like that. Any. And he said, well, um, did he spoil it for you? No, no, no. But you know how there are those few things that you really, really don't like in film. And I'm mm. like, oh, you mean rape? Yeah, but that's not what it is. Oh, you mean children being, you know, tortured and killed? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. then I was like, oh, man. And so then, of course, I still had to watch it knowing now that the, the kid was, I mean, and I was like, I kind of knew he was going to die or, or not. You know, like that was fine. But the way, the yes. way that he died. Okay, so now I have to step back and say, hmm, if I have to pick between the nihilistic ending of the movie where David fucking shoots everybody in the head, doesn't have enough bullets for himself, even though he already knew he didn't have enough bullets, but somehow he thinks magically a bullet is going to materialize. Well, he's just expecting to die by a monster. Well, no, first he tries. He tries. Yeah. He boom, 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 shot, shot, shot. Then he, then he plays with the gun as if a bullet will magically appear in the gun, which of he, course it doesn't. He then he gets so out. stressed at this point, to be fair. Whatever. He gets out. <laughs> he's wondering, come here, monsters. Come get me. But you know what shows up? Not the monsters. No, no. The military and the tanks and the fire things. And everybody's going to be fine. And they have a way to fight the monsters. And the mist is dissipating. And then the sun comes out. And David lays in the street and screams. Oh, my God. Okay. Very nihilistic. <laughs> very depressing. Except, okay... You say it's more nihilistic, except in the movie, the mist actually dissipates. You know, it goes sure. away. In the book, it doesn't. They're living in a hell world. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's there's no military coming to rescue. Well, we don't know. It's ambiguous. There might be something in Hope or Hartford or somewhere else that's out of radio range. We don't know. We don't know is bad. But we know for sure that if you'd waited 30 seconds, then you would have been saved. Because seriously, okay, I get I get the thing. I understand you're going to kill each other, suicide, fine. But why did you have to do it right then? It wasn't like the, the monsters were, were breaking down the car. No, they had eaten in the last 12 hours. They weren't about to die. I feel like he could have waited until they knew for sure that they were going to starve. Or they knew for sure so that something was going to take... this to transition into Cujo, too. No. <laughs> Where they're just stuck in the car. And well, the monsters may come and I believe in them. waiting until the very last possible second to make a, a, a decision that has such huge ramifications. So yes. Here's another change that they made. Um, at, I'm the sorry. They could have killed those old people and eaten them. They could have lived for days in that car. <laughs> okay. But I like the teacher. No killing English teachers. Thank you. <laughs> Bad Kalia. Still, my point is he rushed it and he didn't need to. Okay. But still, don't kill your English teachers. And, and, and I know that part of that was the point. It was so futile and blah. And like, you know, he didn't know. And if you'd only know, we'd all make better decisions if we know. And hindsight's twenty twenty, and all of that stuff. And that's just great. But that's also really, really, really depressing. And I did not like getting bummed out. I don't like getting bummed out, y'all. Okay, but this is more of an issue with you having a problem with the genre yes. rather than this being a bad ending. Because it's yes. a really, really good ending for this genre. It's a compelling ending. Okay. It is an appropriate ending. Right. I will not give you the word good. I'm taking that <laughs> word away from you. <laughs> we are reappropriating the word, word good. Yes, because no. Okay, so here's a change that the director made. Originally... He was going to have everyone who was in the supermarket be saved, and they were going to be on the military trucks. And I'm so glad they didn't do that, because we were looking at movies as messages. What are they conveying? And that these were the people who dared to escape, and therefore they're punished by this extra tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. So, again... Again, who's getting punished and why? But here's something that most people may not have noticed, Kalia, is the woman who ran out early on. She was on there. Yeah. Yep. So she she made it. She made it and she got her kids. Yep. Yep. So maybe the lesson here is um, leave early. (laughs) Like every good party, leave early before civilization devolves and people start killing each other. Hey! Okay. But it's a very effective ending. It is very effective. And... Yes, I, I do prefer the film ending to the book ending. Okay, but I'm getting the evil eye right well, now. Well, okay. <laughs> I, I, if I had to pick between the two endings in terms of effectiveness, sure, it'll stick with you. It resonates, blah, 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 blah. I'm just not sure what point it was making. I'm not sure if the, if the nihilistic depressing end was making a point or was it just being extreme for the sake of being extreme. So convince me. That there was a reason for it, because otherwise, it, I know my phone's buzzing. I'm ignoring my phone. Whoever's calling me right now, you don't get to talk to me during podcast time. Oh, there's someone at the door. Oh, ignoring the door too. Okay, <laughs> tell me, <laughs> give me a reason. <laughs> so a little insight into Kaylee's life here. No, no, tell me, give me a reason. All right, why. so we're looking at this whole film as duality. Do we have any other themes that we've been exploring? We've been having tribalism. Do you have hope over despair? Does despair win? And what kind of how do you view the world as, yeah. as you know people being good or bad? So a lot inherently. of this film is looking at 
you know, humanity is the monster. Humanity is lost. You give us a tough situation and we fold very quickly. It did not take them long. It was like just a couple days and we have the Messiah and human sacrifice and we're going to ruin people and throw them out into right. you know, danger. So it is thematically relevant, it is thematically appropriate to what the film is trying to say about humanity. How? Because that he made a bad choice or that they shouldn't have gone or that they should have or they should have been more patient. Like, what's what? Draw the... Draw the conclusion? Yeah. Okay, so do you prefer the book ending? <sighs> okay, again, not liking the genre all that much. <laughs> I really was unsettled with the book ending. I found it a bad ending. A bad ending. Mm. Okay? And then I found the movie ending horrible in the in the way it was supposed to be horrible. Mm-hmm. And I personally don't like feeling horrible. I, you know, weirdly enough. Well, just because you don't like feeling horrible doesn't mean it's not appropriate. That's true. I'm not going to yuck your yum. If you like getting <laughs> bummed out, here's the movie for you. But I think that ending has a whole lot more impact. It, it, yes. Granted. But just because something is extreme, just because something is impactful doesn't necessarily make it good and it doesn't necessarily mean it, it, it connects to the themes but if you look at the violence it is an extreme it's the most sort of gentle it's not a great word for it but it is the most gentle sort of violence everything else is people getting ripped apart in really really awful ways and this is david again stepping up as that figure of authority finally yeah. So now he's the leader, right? Because we talked about it before. He always mm-hmm. wanted somebody else to be the leader. So now he actually takes onus. He's going to be the leader. He kills them all and then gets rescued. So he's punished. Yeah. In a pretty major way. Yeah. And yeah. all the other leaders died in really gruesome, terrible ways. And he, as a leader, has his own tragedy. I just feel like if I had been in that car, mm. I would have been like, there are other ways to die. We don't have to shoot each other. Like somebody's got a belt or a scarf. Somebody can get strangled so that there's enough bullets for everybody. You can hit somebody really fast, badly in the head. Hit them, smack them, make them go unconscious, and then toss their body out of the car so the monsters have something to eat. You still have enough bullets for everybody. Shoot. Okay, this is going to sound weird. Please, please, internet, don't take this out of context. Shooting the kid in the head was fine, but everybody else could have died a different way. <laughs> there was no need. And and if there's going to be, if they're going to do that, that's fine if it, makes sense and if it tells us a message if we learn something from it i didn't learn anything are you supposed to learn something from a horror film i mean this okay really see, there about- you go that's the genre again but <laughs> i i just yeah i guess not which is why i don't like where's the morals where's the message what's the meaning is there a universal truth that we can claim to besides the fact that people are inherently bad and civilization will crumble and and everything it, you know whatever i uh, gag Okay, so, Kalia, part of that is sort of your idea that hope shouldn't have been lost so quickly. Yes. So yep. we as humans, we, we lose it, and we lose it very quickly when we should kind of stick to who we are in a much stronger yes. way. Yes, and I guess that is the lesson. The lesson is you should have stuck with your hope longer, David, and then <laughs> you would not have killed your son. That's our lesson. If you could have just kept that hope a little bit longer, things would have been okay. You, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Even though we find that really cheesy in the in the book when that's the last word. Okay, that's not the thing at the end isn't don't lose hope. I mean, it is. But it's not. <laughs> it's, it's the ambiguous, there may or may not be hope. I. It was badly written ending. Mm. It wasn't necessarily bad because we didn't know what was going to happen. I don't mind not knowing what's going to happen. It's the, 
it's just it, it just the way it was written was so anticlimactic and and because it was a novella it wasn't like we'd suffered through 500 pages and then you're like god please just end it was like oh this is really short you really kind of owe us stephen king like another couple of chapters here like i've invested time and energy and you're just gonna freaking put your hands in the air and be like done ha <laughs> like i don't know I to me- at least at least you know you're right the the ending of the movie connected better but as for I, the book, it is an emotional ending because everything's taking place in the story. You escape the story, you're done with the story. You know, that really is the end of the story yeah. for him. And so I don't mind that as much. I mean, it, it's an ending. Stephen King isn't great with those. So, meh, at least okay. it's short. Do we have any takeaways? Final thoughts? Okay. Um, if you find yourself in a car running away from aliens, don't be so quick to pull the trigger. Agreed. Pages and Popcorn Podcast was brought to you today by <laughs> Seething Rage <laughs> and Coffee. And um, come back and visit us again on our next time when we will talk about something that hopefully doesn't end with everybody dying. Until next time. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.